This is episode 15 of the Swallier Pride podcast with Rebecca Levy. And yes, she is the same girl that I interviewed in episode 13 that was all about treatment. So if you missed that one, go back and listen to that. But the reason she's doing a part two is because originally we sat down to talk about thickened liquids. And we just kept talking and talking and then she kept going into treatment and more treatment and it was just such a good episode, but it was so much information that I was like, oh man, we got to split this into two. So luckily Rebecca gave you guys, she gave you so much incredible information in episode 13 on treatment. And today we have episode 15, which is all about thickened liquids. So the good, the bad, and the ugly. Rebecca is a speech-language pathologist currently in the role of clinical program consultant for ACP's Synchrony Dysphagia Program. Rebecca has worked in healthcare for over 11 years. Although she spent the first two years of her career in special education, she quickly realized that she had a passion for the geriatric setting and specifically working with patients with dysphagia. She spent about eight years in a SNF setting and five of those years she was a director of rehab for her therapy program, but never stepped away from treating. She also spent some time doing private home health and worked on a mobile van completing video fluoroscopy. Rebecca's current role of clinical consultant is probably her most fulfilling, helping to educate other SLPs and helping them to get superior outcomes with their patients. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hi guys, welcome back. I cannot believe that it's Thanksgiving week, where is this year gone? It's been a totally crazy year, but I want to say that I am beyond grateful to all of you for tuning into this really cool podcast and just making it what it is. I, like I said, had no expectations when I was first starting and I love that everyone's really embraced it and so many cool speakers are lined up to be on it and it's just become bigger than I could have ever imagined. So I'm beyond grateful to you guys, but I also do need to say thank you to the CEU sponsors that are helping out with this. I just want to be open and honest. I do get a small percentage when you guys do use these promo codes. Um, But again, that just all comes back to help with the production of this thing because it's not easy and it takes up a lot of time. So I do need a lot of help with that. And I I have no problem admitting that. But I just want to give a big special thank you to our sponsor of the month, Accelerated Care Plus, which is ACP, the Synchrony Company. Uh, ACP has partnered with the Swallier Pride podcast to offer a reduced introductory price offer for November and December. Synchrony is a surface electromyography biofeedback device designed specifically for dysphagia rehabilitation. You'll remember that Rebecca and I talked about that at length in episode 13. So Synchrony includes engaging augmented reality to help engage patients in therapy. In addition, SYP listeners are eligible for an on-site Synchrony demo and a waived registration fee for three one-hour online ASHA-approved courses. For more information, visit www.acpplus.com forward slash dysphagia treatment or call 1-800-350-1100. 
in in the last episode of episode 13 with Rebecca, we both were talking about how much we just really, really, really enjoyed the AMP Care CEU course. And I will totally admit, since I do diagnostics all day, that sometimes I fall behind on keeping up with the latest treatment CEUs. And I'd always heard that e-STEM was, you know, you know, it's so effective for PTs and OTs. You see them using it all the time, but there's definitely a lot of controversy with it as far as speech pathologists using it to rehab the swallow. So believe me, I've been the ultimate skeptic on e-STEM for a while now, but uh, my buddies Rick and Russ from AmpCare, they swindled me into taking their online CEU course a few months back. And I'm not going to lie, you guys, it was so good. Like I was totally hooked. And so Rick is a fellow SLP, just like the rest of us. Um, but Russ is a physical therapist with an extensive knowledge, e-STEM, that he's used as a modality throughout his entire PT career. So like I said, I took this course a while back uh, when I was actually studying for my board certification exam. Their CEU course is considered an advanced course. So for anyone that needs advanced CEUs, if you're working towards your BCS, uh, hop on this course. But anyways... The entire first half of the course is like all about basic muscle physiology, the makeup of the actual swallowing muscle fibers, a killer review of the cranial nerves, probably like the most elaborate review that I've had since grad school. And I'm pretty sure I didn't pay this close attention in grad school to the anatomy and physiology. But like I said, I was totally hooked on this course. Um, And you guys know I keep it real. I don't sugarcoat things here. So Another thing that I just super appreciated about this course is they go into detail about the populations that are best served with this treatment and the populations that should not undergo e-STEM. So it's not a one-size-fits-all treatment, but it has shown some awesome outcomes as far as improving the swallow. And in their course, they also discuss why they use the electrode size and shape that they do, the various parameters on the unit, which it does vary from other Easton manufacturers, so that's important to note. So, since Rick and Russ are super nice guys, they're offering 50 bucks off their CEU course exclusively for Swallow Your Pride listeners. So, they have a bunch of upcoming live courses. I would totally highly recommend you guys get to a live course if you can. These guys are so fun, and they just make it really easy to understand this super complex info. Um, So if you're near any one of those cities, yeah, head to this course. But the cost of the live conference is usually $325, but $275 for Swallow Your Pride listeners. And if your facility does purchase the actual device, so the actual e-STEM unit costs $649 regularly, your training will be further discounted down to $200. But if you can't get to a live course, they're also offering $50 off their online course which that's a course that I took and it's still, it's phenomenal, super entertaining. And just, like I said, this is a great course, but of course will only cost you a hundred bucks. You can sit and watch it on your couch with a glass of wine and get 0.8 advanced CEUs. So also not going to lie, the training manual that comes with this course is really good too. I referred back to it so many times when I was studying for my BCS exam, just it's a great anatomy review, cranial nerve review. Yeah, that manual is great as well. So Go to swallowtherapy.com forward slash SYP to register for any of these courses. And also, if you just head over to their website, you guys, they have some really cool videos showing the e-STEM unit at work. And they also have a review of all the literature that they have to support their FDA cleared device, 
and protocol. And yes, I am working on getting them on the podcast very, very soon. But anyways, go check out swallowtherapy.com forward slash SYP to check out their courses and sign up for this training. Okay, and just one more thing. I super promise I'm so sick hearing myself talk. I want to get to the show too. But one last thing, if you guys have not taken advantage of the MedBridge deal yet, this is the last time this year that the free upgrade to the premium package will be offered. So this deal expires November 30th. So I'm so impressed with the program they've got going on there. And also, if you guys are across the pond, anyone in the UK or Australia, you guys can take advantage of this also, which I know there's been a lot of people over there that have said it's been great. Um, But basically for $95 for an entire calendar year, you get unlimited CEUs. There are so many awesome dysphagia courses in here by about the, the highest quality of researchers, teachers we have in this field covering all disorders. So there's stroke, there's head and neck cancer, there's a whole gamut of, of all different disorders. But I do want to highlight the handouts that they have that if you use this SYP promo code for the month of November, you are automatically upgraded to the premium plan for still that same $95. So what the premium plan includes is tons of patient education handouts and also a mobile app, which is so convenient when I'm driving. I can just put on one of these courses, listen to it in the background. I love that. These patient education handouts are top quality. I happen to know a few of the awesome people that created these, but uh, there's a handout for oral care. There's a handout for aspiration precautions. There's exercise handouts, so how to do a supraglottic swallow, how to do an effortful swallow, how to do a Shakir, Uh, There's handouts all right here that you can print out and give right to your patient. So not things that you need to spend doing with beautiful images also. So just wanted to highlight that. If you guys want to take advantage of that deal, I know it's getting to be the end of the year and people need to get on their CEUs, but it's good for an entire calendar year from the day you set up. So go to medbridgeeducation.com, select speech language pathology, Select the premium plan and then type in SYP as your promo code and you will get all of these awesome handouts and the mobile app for free with that premium plan, free upgrade. So go ahead and take advantage of that if you can. All right, so like I said, so sick of hearing myself talk. Let's get to part two with Rebecca Levy and the good, the bad, and the ugly of thickened liquids. So now that you know what you can do with your patient, right? The the horizon's a little brighter. Now you're not just stuck in thick and liquids land. I, I guess talk to us a little bit about how you feel about that topic, Rebecca. Yeah. I do not want to sit and drink nectar thick liquid. So I don't know how I can tell my patient you should do this. I'm not saying that there's never an indication for nectar thick liquids, but we have to just remember this is another human being and their feelings are probably somewhat similar to ours. I know Nanette has talked with you about diet waivers and patient autonomy and that is so important too, right? So there may be some patients who say, you know what, I feel more comfortable drinking the thickened liquids. You know what, go and have a good life. That's, if that makes you happy, then that's what you should absolutely do. But who am I to tell you, you have to drink this. I think that's such a good point because 
what something that just drives me nuts is when we just write off our patients and we just say, oh, they'll never participate in that. Right. There's no way they'll ever do 30 effortful swallows. There's no way they'll ever participate in an instrumental. Right. And did you even ask? Right. Did you even attempt? It drives me nuts when we write off our patients and we don't even give them the benefit of the doubt and the respect of even a chance. Absolutely. And this is the catchphrase that I love to hate. It, patient is currently tolerating their diet. <laughs> Oh, what does that even mean? They're tolerating their diet. What does that mean? Yeah. Right? I tolerate my burpees, but I don't like right. them. So instead of thinking about what can our patients tolerate, I try to think of what is the best outcome I can get for my patient. Oh, patient drinks it and they're fine. They're okay. We've managed their diet. We've managed their symptoms. They're fine okay, but is that the best we can do? Or can we do better? And I think for most of our patients, if not all of our patients, we can certainly do better than they're okay, they're tolerating this. Absolutely. So the first thing is, if for whatever reason they come into your building and they're on thick and liquids, and you've identified that there's some kind of impairment that has caused the SLP to recommend thick and liquids, get those exercises going and get them off the thick and liquids. And there was a study done by Maggie Huckabee in 1999. She had 10 brainstem stroke survivors, and all of them were on PEG tubes. They were all, on average, about two years post-stroke, okay? So these are chronically involved individuals. They all need alternative means of nutrition. So they're pretty impaired. This isn't like, oh, my patient with just a touch of dysphagia, right? These yeah. are, when you have someone with a brain stroke, that's pretty involved, right? Right, right. And she had them complete 10 sessions of therapy and they were all doing effortful swallows and they were all 60 minute sessions, guys. Again, this is, you know, people have asked, well, how long should my sessions be? It depends on what the patient needs, but I think you can easily fill a 60 minute session if you're truly spending your time doing exercises. Absolutely. Um, so they all had 60-minute sessions, and they all did effortful swallows. And full disclosure, they were using SEMG biofeedback. This was in 1999. Biofeedback is great. We do have 40 years of research that proves that you get great outcomes from it. But they were doing their effortful swallows using biofeedback, and then they all had their own personal devices to take home, and they'd spend another hour every night doing the same exercise. Oh, that's cool. Biofeedback, right? Yeah, that's cool. And after those 10 sessions, they were discharged. And at some point after the study was over, they went and got repeat video fluoroscopy, okay? And what the video floor showed was that nine out of 10 of those patients showed significant improvement. Crazy. Okay, so I am the person who used to think research is really boring and oh, you have to read this long <laughs> article and like all these terms yes. I don't understand and like, what do these numbers even mean? And then when I read this study and I sat and I thought about it, I was like, okay, so when I was practicing and, and I've been in the field for about 11 years now, nine out of 10 of her patients improved. Like, did I get nine out of 10 of my patients to improve? Like back when I was treating, you know, when I was- a Like patient, brainstem strokes. A brainstem like, strokes. Yeah, I mean, not, right. not like you said, not just willy-nilly dysphagia. Like, right, right. Like legitimate, yeah. Right, and how many of my patients did I spend two months, three months, even four months, you know, trying to get them to improve and maybe a an itty bitty bit of improvement. I was like, yes, I did it. This is awesome. Right. I feel so good. And I bet this patient's so hit, right? 10 sessions only and nine out of 10 improved. And now I've got another number that's like 
more like, okay, your jaw is on the ground, right? Yeah. After this, after this intervention, eight out of 10 of them had improved enough that they were able to have their peg tubes removed. Awesome. That's an 80% reduction in peg tubes. Yeah. Yeah. I never saw that kind of, of outcomes in my own practice. I would be so happy if I got a 50% reduction in peg tubes, right? Yeah. And there were a number of factors here. They were doing intensive exercise. They were doing the right exercise. And yes, they were using biofeedback. But even if you guys don't have biofeedback, this is still the right exercise to do. And the intensity is so important. I mean, think about how those eight people, how their lives were impacted by that. That just, so once I read that, then I'm like, okay, you know what? Research is kind of cool. Like this is pretty exciting when you see stuff like that, right? Yeah. And what is she doing? Because whatever she's doing (laughs) is what I need to be doing in my practice, right? So that was kind of when I started being like really excited about like patient outcomes and like evidence-based practice. And it's not like this is a brand new article that just came out. This has been around for 18 years, right? So this is not new evidence, Um, but this is really exciting. You're such an evidence-based practice success story, Rebecca. I am. I really (laughs) am. (laughs) No, I don't want to know the research. And I think the the first thing that kind of got me into it was when I did take that AMP care course, just because, you know, you have, um, there's so much controversy in our field about NMES and whether it's effective or not. And so I went in thinking, okay, well, this is something I want to learn about and I don't know if it's going to be effective or not. And there are all these other other types of e-stim that, you know, you hear good things about and you hear bad things about and whatever. So like, I just, I don't even know, but it's, it's a course. I can get some CEUs for it. And I think it's a good course that's applicable to what I'm doing. And it would be really nice to have another tool in my toolbox. And so when they started talking about the evidence, it's like, okay, that's kind of cool. Like I didn't get into it. I wasn't like a super nerd about it yet. But that was kind of like the springboard for me to kind of get on the trajectory that I am on now. So that was, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Russ. <laughs> I know. So, I mean, I've known them for years, which is so funny, but I'm always, I'm, you know, I'm so locked into diagnostic land. You know, I really, right. I'm not ashamed to say I don't know everything about treatment, you know? So he was like, take the course, take the course. I'm like, I don't do treatment. Like, I don't do treatment. I only do diagnostics. Like, I will, I'll take it someday. Like, it's just not on my radar. So then once I took it, I'm like, you guys, this is so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's probably been eight years since I've taken their course. So it may, it may have changed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they ask for feedback all the time. Even eight years ago, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. And it was definitely like one of those courses that you're not like trying to force yourself to stay awake. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, as I practice more and more and more, and then I see this article and I'm like, okay, this is, this is the game changer. So hopefully you guys are as excited about those outcomes as I was about. So is it safe to say that was your game changing article, Rebecca? Yes, that is. I actually have a a couple of different ones that we can talk about. All right, cool. Yeah, but that that's probably the game changer that got me like super excited about evidence-based interventions and made me think, okay, there is so much more we can do for our patients. And we don't have to spend four months trying to get these outcomes. We can get pretty fast outcomes when we do the right things, when we apply neuroplastic principles. Yeah, y- Yvette was addressing that too. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I had a lot of people email me. They're like, what is Yvette doing that she's getting such fast outcomes? And I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay, we'll talk about treatment more. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. I'm so glad you asked me to talk 
talk about that. I really think it's <laughs> yeah. so important. But when we do the treatment, then we don't have to get our patients just tolerating diets, right? Totally. To- I think that's the, the key word, key phrase, I should say. So part of this has to do with patient rights and quality of life. That is such a big thing. You know, eating is a huge psychosocial aspect of our lives. We've got Halloween coming up right? Probably by the time this airs, it will have just passed. But like, what do you do on Halloween? You binge eat chocolate. Yes. That's right. (laughs) And then after that, what's our next big holidays? Thanksgiving. And what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say, when I talk about Thanksgiving? Pumpkin pie. Pumpkin pie. Okay. (laughs) Most people say turkey, but I think I'm with you. I would say pumpkin pie too. But in most of our lives, food comes first down food comes first and so when we take away a patient's ability to eat the things that give them enjoyment we are taking away their quality of life and you know to some degree i think we're really doing them a disservice totally right who are we to say that not aspirating on a liquid is more important than being able to sit with your family and enjoy thanksgiving dinner i don't think that that's our role I completely agree. And I think that's the patient's right to decide that. I don't think that's our right to decide. Well, I don't even think it's it's supported by federal law <laughs> right. 27 years ago. Right. But well, I, there's the law. I, so. I fully agree with the law. <laughs> right. In this one instance. In this, in this For those of you guys who are wondering, it is called the Patient Self-Determination Act of 1990. You can Google it. You can get the full text. You can, there's tons of interpretation. It was all in in Nanette's episode. That was in her show notes. So Yeah. Yeah. So that's the big thing there when we talk about why are we giving patients what we're giving them from a psychosocial aspect, from an emotional aspect, from a quality of life aspect. Really, when we think of patients' liquids, there's no, there's very slim chance that they are going to enjoy it as much as eating regular foods and drinking regular liquids. Totally, totally. And then you could get into all sorts of things like compliance, like is the nursing staff actually, you know, thickening their liquids? And then you get into the whole thing. So many places haven't accepted the Idzy diet yet. So right. when we say give them nectar thick, are they really getting nectar Right. No, it's like a concrete block. Right. And then the next thing we have to think about is what are these thickened liquids actually doing physiologically to our patients? Okay. So this is... Um, actually some really interesting information. And when I talk to some SLPs about it, it almost seems a little bit controversial, even though there's like so much research and so many yeah. to back it up. <laughs> but I think many of us are a little bit behind on this information. So I'm really glad I could talk about it. It's not controversial. It's based in science. There we go. Yep. So when we talk about, okay, we want to put someone, someone's not safe when they drink their thin liquids. What the heck does safe mean? And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But let's stop them from aspirating because if we stop them from aspirating when they drink, we, we can stop them from getting aspiration pneumonia. No, this isn't true. And we can actually be increasing their incidence of aspiration pneumonia. So honey thick doesn't necessarily make someone less likely. And Right, right. When we talk about safety, what is this patient safe on? Advice loves to say, well, what does safe mean? Right. Right? And I can come (laughs) up with a lot of different definitions. And you know what? What safe means to me, though, may not be what safe means to you. So when we're looking at our patients and we see them aspirating, we don't want to just ask ourselves, is aspiration safe for this patient or not safe for this patient? Because there's so many other things we need to think about. 
number one, quality of life, right? For me, that is just the biggest factor is patient's quality of life. Like what is even the point if we're not trying to improve their lives? We also have to look at the fact that when we thicken patients' liquids, we wind up with increased rates of UTIs, okay? And then the other thing that is very likely to happen is the patient is more likely to become dehydrated on thickened liquids. Why? Because when you thicken someone's liquids, the patient's probably not going to want to drink as much. And why are we deciding that aspiration pneumonia is more dangerous than I use my finger quotes? Why do we decide that aspiration pneumonia is more dangerous than dehydration? And Ed Bice, I, you know, I adore the guy. He's, uh, I've learned so much from him. But one of the things that he says that I absolutely love is you can aspirate and still live. You cannot be dehydrated and malnourished and still live. Absolutely. Okay. This is such a great point. We always think about how, oh, my job is to make sure they don't get pneumonia. They don't aspirate. No, it's not just that because there's so many other negative consequences. Even if we are decreasing their rate of aspiration, and even if that does decrease the rates of aspiration pneumonia, which in the study, it didn't show, there are so many other bad things that can happen. And Clinically. yeah, and I, and I will say, I don't know the exact numbers. I, I wasn't prepared for this comment, so don't hold this against me, everyone. But, okay. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I do know, I mean, in one of the studies that I've referenced a lot is aspiration pneumonia, UTIs, and dehydration all account for the major causes of rehospitalizations for patients. And that's what the skilled nursing facilities get fined tens of thousands of dollars to prevent. So only one of those components is aspiration pneumonia, or actually the other three, UTIs, dehydration, malnutrition. There's actually a fifth one, which is sepsis, which can be a result of UTI, dehydration, malnutrition. So all of these components, you know, so we're just so focused on only preventing aspiration pneumonia. And there's these other four things that we have in play also. Right. Like increased rates of wounds, which will come from being dehydrated and malnourished. And now we've got a really big problem because we've got multiple things going on with this patient just because we put them on thickened liquids. So is putting that patient on thickened liquids really making them safer? And if you ask me and my personal opinion, the answer is no. I think even if they're, and it depends on how much they're aspirating and um, a lot of other factors, but I might think that thin liquids, even if they're aspirating, some of them might be safer than putting them on thickened liquids. When you look at all the different potential outcomes. There was another study done from Joe Murray and looking at water protocols. Okay, so patients on thickened liquids, and does it impact the health status of individuals with thin liquid aspiration following a stroke? So she had participants in a water protocol group and patients that were in a thickened liquid group and found that the number of milliliters of liquid from the thin liquid group, from the water protocol group, didn't significantly change compared to the patients that were only drinking thickened liquids. They were drinking the thin liquids and that was, and then they would drink fewer thickened liquids to account for that. But what she found is the patients on the water protocol group had improved hydration status over time compared with the participants in the thickened liquids only group. The differences weren't significant, but this was actually looking at them after only two weeks. 
And I, Ianissa Humbert was saying the other day that you may not see something being statistically significant, but you look at the timeline. And if you were to continue that, you might continue to see that trend. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting point. Well, and I think for us, I mean, I think even two weeks in a skilled nursing facility is pretty good turnaround, yeah. you know, is, is great, right. you know, considering some people, you know, Medicare Part A, they give you 100 days, essentially, right. you know, and we could be doing 100 days of crappy treatment and getting nowhere. Right. Absolutely. And a couple of their interesting things happened in that study where no one was diagnosed with pneumonia during that time. So even the patients that were aspirating the thin liquid still didn't get pneumonia. What? Can you believe it? Yeah. <laughs> aspiration didn't automatically cause aspiration pneumonia, right? And there's a number of different studies that talk about that, but I want to finish up this study first. Um, there was a significant difference in the number of patients diagnosed with urinary tract infections. The thickened liquids only group had a significantly increased number of urinary tract infections compared to the water protocol group. And then when she looked at their dehydration levels, so she looked at their BUN and creatinine, she found a trend of improvement of hydration status and a decrease in dehydration status for the water protocol group, whereas after two weeks, those on thickened liquids only deteriorated in hydration status. There's another study, and I can't remember what it is. Advice, if you're listening, maybe you can post some comments. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But when someone was admitted to a hospital and had their their liquids thickened, they actually showed a change in their BUN and creatinine within three days. That's a pretty acute amount of time to see that kind of change. And we know BUN and creatinine, um, just as an FYI, is an indication of your hydration status. So yes. that's really pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, and Ed and I wrote a joint blog post together about aspiration, aspiration pneumonia. And that was one of the big things, the BUN levels and the creatinine levels. Right. So you can check out that blog post that we wrote together if this is all totally brand new to yeah. you. <laughs> so, I mean, I think there's just so many studies and we have another study that showed um, of patients who do aspirate only 38% of them actually developed aspiration pneumonia, okay? So that's not a tiny number, but certainly less than half. So there's so many times you watch on video fluoro or you watch on fees, someone aspirates and everyone in the room goes, oh! right? That's yep. all our reactions. That's, that's like the first thing because, oh my God, they aspirate. I can't even believe it. But you know what? There's a great likelihood nothing's going to happen with that. And if you listen to John Ashford's podcast episode with you and yep. you read what he has published, I think when you take that into account, you know, why are we so, so worried about aspiration? Right. We know that you have to aspirate, you have to have poor health status and poor oral hygiene in order to develop aspiration pneumonia. And we can definitely easily affect the quality of a patient's oral health. So if we're taking care of that, then why do we even need to thicken liquids, right? Because from what he has said, if the patient's aspirating, but they have good oral care, they're not going to get aspiration pneumonia. But again, we can preserve that quality of life. We can reduce the rates of dehydration, malnutrition, wounds. And what happens when all that stuff happens? You get decreased participation in therapy. You get increased hospitalization rates. I mean, just it's a snowball effect. So totally. instead of being the diet police and worrying so yes. much, oh my God, they aspirated, 
let's just spend our time rehabbing the swallow because we've got these great tools where we can do that. Right. Let's do some solid oral care and some actual treatment. Absolutely. You know, and I think there was one point in my career that, you know, I wasn't aware of all of this information and I felt like you see an aspiration. And back in the 80s, I think it was, they had hypothesized, if you aspirate, you will develop aspiration pneumonia. And that's just continued on and on. And we're also scared. So I would sit and make sure that none of my patients were aspirating and I was giving them all the right diets, whatever that But, you know, they were all on thick and liquids and I'm sitting and they don't want to drink it. And here I'm feeling like the diet police. And I did not feel very fulfilled in my career. Once I started focusing on evidence-based practice on on actually rehabbing my patient's swallow versus being so concerned about what they put in their mouth, my own personal satisfaction level went through the roof in terms of my career. I love being a speech pathologist now. I don't feel burned out. I love what I do every day. I love that, you know, even though I don't have my own patients at this point, I'm consulting with all these. I see, instead of having my own caseload of maybe eight or nine or 10 patients, I can see hundreds of patients at this point. And when I see them getting better and I have SLPs calling me and texting me all the time, oh my gosh, you should see what Mr. So-and-so did this week. And now he's eating whatever he wants and he feels better and he's doing this. It's, it's so fulfilling and it feels absolutely amazing because I actually feel like patients are finally getting better and they're not yes. just tolerating. I, I think that's such a good point. I know, you know, I think that we all find a point in our career where we're like, are we burned out? Is this what we really want? And that's when I started my mobile fees company. And and I love it because now, you know, I always tell my patients, like, I'm going to bring you good news today. Yeah. It might not be exactly what you thought you were going to hear, but we're going to at least identify the problem. And I think that's half the battle. You know, if you're running the gamut of, well, we're not really sure, we don't really know, we're just doing these exercises, like nobody's going to be fulfilled in their career that way. You know, but when I can actually tell a patient exactly what's going on, you know, get them a good treatment plan or as much as we, you know, just talked about diets, but if there is something diet modification or compensatory strategies that we can do in the meantime, you know, I just, I'm so much more fulfilled in that I can actually give them answers to the problems that they've been having for years. So, right. So, yeah. (laughs) So I just want to talk a little bit more about aspiration and what thickening liquids does and what making someone NPO does. Okay. So why do, why do we thicken someone's liquids? Why, why do you think that somebody would say, oh, they should be on nectar thick liquids or they should be on honey thick? Or is it they aspirated and we don't want to see that liquid go into their lungs? Right. Right. They coughed. Okay. Let me back up for just one sec. Why do we have thickened liquids? So thickened liquids were invented in the 80s or 90s, and it was not to prevent or reduce aspiration. It was for people who had poor oral control because the liquids move around pretty fast, right? And it allowed them to have better control over the bolus when it was in their mouth. It was never intended to prevent someone from aspirating. So in those kind of situations, it might be beneficial to allow that patient for a temporary time, I'm putting that in all capital right, temporary right, right, time right, right, right. to right. be on thickened liquids while we work to improve their oral control, right? Because that Absolutely. might make them feel more comfortable. Yep. Um, sometimes we will see someone on thin liquids and they're coughing and coughing and coughing and coughing and then they're not and then you give them nectar thick liquids and they don't cough. 
Well, first of all, I really hope that you are following up with an instrumental evaluation because just because we don't hear them cough doesn't mean they're not aspirating. Right. And that doesn't mean that I should choose nectar liquids for my patients. That's going to mean that I'm going to go to my patient and say, look, on this instrumental study, when you swallow the thin liquids, this is what happened. And here are potential outcomes and here are potential benefits. And I'm always going to speak to facts only. I am never going to say, well, you could get aspiration pneumonia and you could die because now I'm scaring my patient. That's coercion. Right. That's absolutely, I think that when we talk about, you know, how we're going to tell the patient that this might kill them and they might die if they drink that, that is coercion. I don't think that's ethical at all. We need to speak about yeah. the facts. So I know from the study, patients that aspirated on liquids, on thin liquids, 38% of them wound up getting aspiration pneumonia. Okay, but we also know that if you drink the nectar thick, that you might wind up being dehydrated because you're probably not going to enjoy it and talk about the benefits. And when you were drinking the thin liquids in this case, you were coughing all the time. And when you drank the thickened liquids, you didn't. And we're gonna talk about what they did and didn't aspirate on and what the risks truly are based on evidence and not just our own right. emotional feelings. I'm gonna to say to the patient, so with this information in mind, what do you wanna do? And I know we've talked about that a lot. And the patient may decide, okay, you know what? I, the coughing is really uncomfortable and really irritating to my throat. And I don't cough when I'm drinking nectar thick, so I prefer nectar thick. That's great, that's a great reason to do that. But it's never because I, the SLP, feel more comfortable with it. It is not about what I'm comfortable with. Totally. I think one of my most favorite lines is that we have to take our comfort and our emotion out of it. It's not our decision to make. Absolutely. And we, and we know that aspiration, again, doesn't cause aspiration pneumonia. 45% of healthy people aspirate in their sleep. So, Teresa, either you aspirated last night or I aspirated last night. Yeah, but I'm not somebody did. So concerned. <laughs> I'm not so concerned right. about one of us winding up in the hospital. Because we probably both brushed our teeth this morning when we woke up, too. Right. Absolutely. Every day, <laughs> every day, whether I need it or not, right? <laughs> right. And we know that 70% of people with impaired consciousness do aspirate. So does that mean we should just be putting everyone with impaired consciousness on thickened liquids to prevent aspiration? Probably not. Right. But one thing that we also have to think about is even when we do thicken liquids, if that does prevent them from aspirating the liquid, number one, there is an increased risk of residue. And if there's residue, when you see that on an instrumental study and you turn that off or I take the scope out of your nose, we don't know what happened to that residue when they either went back from the hospital or went back into bed or you know anything like that. They could have just as easily aspirated those liquids too. We just didn't happen to see it. It happened after the fact. And right. even if we give you a liquid that doesn't cause you to aspirate at all, that doesn't mean I've stopped you from aspirating. Because there's two more things that you can still be aspirating on. And one thing, if you aspirate on thin liquids, you are probably aspirating, which is your saliva, right? I can't, I can't thicken your saliva all day every day. I'm not going to just be like continuously dumping cornstarch into your mouth. Right. So no matter what diet I give you, no matter if I make you NPO, if you aspirate on your saliva, I can't stop that. Now, maybe my interventions can improve your swallow enough to help reduce or eliminate that, but changing your diet is not going to stop aspiration, period, the end. So how much are we really accomplishing by doing that? And then the other thing we need to be concerned about is refluxed gastric contents. 
can't stop that. There's nothing I could do about that. That's something that needs to be addressed by a GI if you have that kind of reflux. But changing your diet, being on speech therapy, doing all those things, that's not going to change that. Right. And we know that when we make someone completely NPO because, oh my God, they aspirated on everything. Well, a lot of things happen. So number one, now you're probably going to get a peg tube. So you have an increased risk of aspirating reflux gastric contents. We know you're producing less saliva in your mouth and you're going to be swallowing less often. What this does is it creates a great environment for increased colonization of bacteria. Right? So now your mouth is even worse. Even if I'm giving you good oral care, which we know how often that happens in our sniffs, right? right? Because that was an uphill battle I faced every day. You've increased colonization of bacteria. And because you're not eating and not producing as much saliva, you are not swallowing as often. Well, we know the best rehabilitation for a swallow is to swallow more. And we know in neuroplastic principles, you have that use it or lose it principle. So if I'm not swallowing as much, there is a chance that maybe whatever was going on with my swallow, whatever physiologic impairment was present, maybe it actually is now going to get worse because I haven't used it, right? You take all these years of Spanish or you take all these years of French and you learn to be fluent and then you spend three years not speaking a single word. Are you still going to be able to use Spanish if you went to Spain? I just still remember hola. Yeah, that's about it. That's it. it. You can say hola. (laughs) (laughs) ask where the bathroom is and that's it. But because you hadn't been doing that activity, you hadn't been preserving that skill, you lost the skill. So I'm taking away your ability to eat, which means I'm taking away how often you're swallowing. And And again, every person is different. So maybe this won't happen to everyone, but there's certainly a chance that we're going to see a decline in the quality of that swallow even further from what's going on. Yep. So now you take this even worse swallow, you take all this bacteria in the mouth and eventually your patient does swallow, that is going right into their lungs. And it's even worse than if you had just let them drink water, right? Just let them drink water and you let them eat, then they would be salivating more, they would be, you know, clearing their mouth more, the staff would probably be less scared of going into their mouth to give them good oral care. Right. And we're allowing them to stay better hydrated and hopefully, you know, enough to the point where they didn't need that peg tube so we don't have to worry about the increased gastric contents. So what happens when we do make someone NPO is there is actually an increased rate of aspiration pneumonia because of all these things, because you've got the gastric contents, because you've got this decreased function of swallow, you've got decreased rate of swallow, you've got decreased salivary production, and all these things are going to contribute to what's getting into your lungs. And if they're at the point where they've been aspirating on everything and they have a peg tube, there's probably a good chance that they are compromised in some way to begin with, right? Dysphagia, though it's a diagnosis, is not a primary diagnosis. It's usually a secondary diagnosis. You have dysphagia because something caused it to happen, right? Healthy people don't just get dysphagia. Right. So, you know, you look at the three pillars of aspiration from aspiration pneumonia from John Ashford, and now we've got aspiration happening. Um, we've probably got poor oral health happening, right? Because nobody yeah. wants to touch their mouth. And now there's a likelihood, you know, depending on patient to patient, that they have this um, compromised immune system and this compromised health status. So have we made our patients safer? Right. And, you know, it's funny you you say that. I, I, I can't remember. It was maybe a couple months ago. And I I just, I threw it out to a few, few of my close friends. And this patient I had been calling 
called in to come do a fees on had a brain had a brainstem stroke was in the hospital they did an initial modified you know essentially a an absent swallow so they gave him a peg tube and he ended up he was in he was in the hospital he was in the ICU for 45 days 45 days wow and the SLP just wrote on the report absent swallow peg tube no therapy follow up necessary so to me, that just means she wrote off the patient, right? So he was in the ICU for over 40 days with nothing. So I'm called. So he gets finally transferred to the skilled nursing facility. I'm brought in to do a fees. I call, you know, I, I walk in and the wife says, you know, I don't, he didn't have any, any therapy or nobody saw him at the hospital. And she said, but I can't imagine how uncomfortable he was. So she's like, I brushed his teeth three times a day and I gave him a cup of water three times a day. And when she said that to me, I was like, I'm, you probably, you probably rehab to swallow yourself. She probably saved his life. She goes, she goes, well, I just can't imagine how weak he was getting. Like she understood it. She got it. Like she was like, I, you know, I just could imagine that he probably was going to lose his swallow if he wasn't doing it and he was thirsty. So I gave him a little bit of water and I brushed his teeth and we did the fees and I would have had no idea he had a brainstem stroke 40 days ago. The fees was beautiful. That's amazing. I know. And, and I just told the woman, I'm like, you literally rehabbed your own husband's swallow without the help of a, you know, speech pathologist. And I don't want to ever encourage anyone to not to do that. But <laughs> I, to, to just me, let but, the spouse yeah. do all the therapy. No I know. Deal. But I just, I was so, I'm like, holy crap. Like this woman gets it. Like she figured all this stuff out that for some reason in our own field, we've been struggling to figure out. Sure. Yeah. And that's kind of like, if you think about it, well, my patient is weak. So strengthening exercises aren't indicated. Yeah. What? Right. They're weak, so let's not try to strengthen them. Right. Okay. All right. That's interesting. That's a really interesting concept. No, my patient's weak. Let's make them stronger. Right. Right. Yeah. And could you imagine a physical therapist saying that? Oh, this patient is weak and can't walk, so I'm not going to try to increase their quad strength or their this strength so that they can walk again. Right. They're just bedridden for life and there's nothing we can do about it. They wouldn't be a physical therapist for very long. Right. 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 <clears throat> so in terms of the um, predictors of aspiration pneumonia, you know, Langmore has done a number of different studies. Yeah. And so Langmore had a study that had 189 patients in it, and they were aspirating and took a look and followed them up four years later. So that's a pretty longitudinal study. And collected comprehensive data, including instrumental swallow analyses, dental examinations, throat cultures, all sorts of things, and found out that after those four years, only 41% developed pneumonia, 22%. So again, that's a pretty small number. That's not a ton of people getting aspiration pneumonia. And we know that she's got a whole list of predictors of developing aspiration pneumonia. <laughs> the, top, the top one is being tube-fed. Yes. Right? Then the next factor is being dependent for oral care. Yes. Right? It wasn't whether they aspirated or not. In fact, when she did her risk factors of predicting aspiration pneumonia, dysphagia was only number eight on the list. Right. There's right. so many other things that we need to look at. And so we also know from all of this information that doing video fluoroscopy and doing fees don't significantly predict aspiration pneumonia. So 
why bother doing them at all is what I've had some people say. Right, Rebecca. Yeah. I <laughs> well, and I've, and I've had I've had SLP say that to me. I've had administrators say that to me. I've right. had nurses say that to me. And I've had doctors say that to me. In fact, I once had a doctor. We asked for me and the other SLP I was working with at the time asked the doctor for an order to get a video swallow, and he goes. I really don't want to do that because the patient's probably aspirating. And if we see it, it's just going to open up a whole can of worms and you're going to make them NPO. Yep. And like, that's just where you face palm because I'm not looking at this to see, did they aspirate or not? Right. Right. That's right. just one small piece of the puzzle because seeing them aspirating is not telling me if they're going to get pneumonia or not. And so that's not going to make my decision. Do I make them NPO? Oh, they aspirated on thin and not nectar, so I need to make them nectar thick. That is not why I get one of my instrumental exams. Right. Um, like I talked about earlier, it's because if I want to do treatment, whatever's wrong with them, and no matter how bad it is, whatever it may be, if I want to fix it, I have to see it to know what's going on. Right. That's why I get my instrumental studies. Right. Okay. Right. Because I know that it's not going to be a good predictor of whether my patient develops pneumonia or not. And so I'm not going to use that to determine my level of concernedness. Right. <laughs> my comfort level. Yeah. How comfortable I am, how worried I am, how safe I think you are. All of those things are emotion based, right? I'm comfortable giving you thickened liquids because I didn't see you aspirate them. Right. It's not about that. My job is not to tell you what diet you're supposed to be on. It's to tell you when you swallow, this is what happens to your swallow. And of course, put it in terms appropriate for each patient that they can understand and that their family can understand so that they can be educated about it. Right. So I'm not saying I think you should be this or I think you should be this. I'm saying when you do this, this is what happens. And when you do this, this is what happens. What are you comfortable with? Yeah. Even if I feel uncomfortable, it doesn't matter. That's not my job and that's not my scope of practice. I, I've never, no one has ever been able to show me under Ash's, you know, practice guidelines or, you know, um, their scope of practice that we are supposed to be the diet police and we are supposed to be telling people what's safe. Right. Because our scope of practice is to rehabilitate people. And to identify the anatomy and the physiology of the Absolutely. deficits. Absolutely. And the only way I can rehab them is by doing that. Right. Okay. Well, this has been awesome, Rebecca. I just yeah. love all this. Oh my God. All right. Well, so you know let's... how excited I get I know. About... <laughs> and I'm so glad you asked me about treatment too. Yeah. Because... Yeah. I've just been getting, people are like, when are you going to talk about treatment? When are you going to talk about treatment? Right. I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that so many people had no clue about anything about treatment. Well, like... and you know what? I was really one of those people for the longest time and I would go to continue. And one of the reasons I went to Amp Care is I would go, I'd go to the ASHA convention. I'd go to other things and Yes, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm huge on the research now, and I think going to the courses and the seminars where they talk about research is very important and very eye-opening, and I learn a lot from it, but especially as a newer clinician, when you go to that, it's they're not really practically based. Right. They don't really spend that time talking about application of what they're talking about, and so in grad school, I learned all about anatomy and physiology. And I learned how to do video fluoroscopy, which was great, and how to read video fluoroscopy. I learned all these things. I could diagnose a patient. I could tell you exactly what was going on with them. I was great at reading video fluoro. And then if you said to me, okay, so what do I do next? I'd be like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. And the courses that I was going to wouldn't really sit and tell me. And so I was definitely in the same place so many other people are. Yeah. So when you find that course that actually does talk about or a webinar or whatever it is, okay 
hey, if you see this, you can do this. Right. That is just so nice. And even when, when you talk about what interventions do, like in grad school, we learned what an effortful swallow was. We learned when a Mendelssohn maneuver was. And to some degree, maybe we kind of learned when you should do them, but nobody ever told me like, this is how to do it. And this is how much, and this is how often. Right. So yeah, I'm right there with everybody else. No one, none of us know what to do. Like we know how to figure out the problem. Right. We don't know how to figure out the solution. Well, thank you. You've been awesome. In, oh, thank you in so much. giving everyone the answers. So we talked a little bit about how the Maggie Huckabee article was a yes. big game changer for you. What, what else do you have for us? So I have a few different things that I'd like to talk about that were game changers for me. <laughs> All right. No one wants to just stick with my one. Everyone has like three or four. <laughs> so one is a research article, one is a survey, and one is a course. Awesome. So I'm technically I I'm like technically the gamut. following okay. your rules. Okay. So let's just get it out of the way. The favorite course I've ever been to is McNeil Dysphagia Therapy Program. God, I just signed up for it yesterday. I finally oh got gosh, in. I mean, it's really such a great course. And yes, you have to fill out the uh, non-disclosure agreement. So I right. can't, you know, you can't talk about Fight Club. Right. <laughs> um, but I can say that Dr. Crary and Dr. Carnaby are two of the most brilliant people I've ever met. Yeah. Um, and I was lucky enough to actually spend a little time to get to know them personally. Awesome. And they are, they're incredibly smart. They're both funny and engaging. And it's and you learn so much from the course. And I think you feel not just more knowledgeable, but I think it helps you really feel more empowered to treat your patients. This is one of those courses where we're not just talking about theoretical information that we're actually talking about, here's all the information, here's all of the research, and here's how you apply it. And they really give you step-by-step -step procedures on what to do with your patients. Awesome. And when you see the videos they show, like the before and afters, it's, it is so heartwarming just when you think about those patients. I mean, they've had patients that have gone to therapist after therapist after therapist, and for years have been told they'll never eat again. Yeah. And then in a few weeks, they're eating. I mean, these guys are the closest thing to magic that I think you'll ever see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Awesome. And their, and their program, the McNeil Dysphagia Therapy Program, you know, we always talk about how I don't have a magic wand. Nursing loves to think I have this, like, magic wand where I can just, like, right. wave it and make the patient safe. This might be the closest thing to that. So awesome. You are going to love it. I'm so excited, finally. It really is a game changer <laughs> because the, the principles make so much sense this is what you do, but this is why you do it. Yeah. And just all the concepts behind it. It's just, it's absolutely great. So anybody awesome. who has that opportunity, please take this course. It will change your life. Awesome. Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> and then the research article that I think the one of my favorite research articles was probably Maggie Huck Huckabee's study. And Dr. Crary's study came in second where he had the stroke survivors and the cancer survivors because he was he treated them on an average of 12 and 9 sessions respectively and after that time you know he measured based on their functional oral intake scale mm -hmm. and there was a change a positive change on average for three diet levels for the stroke patients and one point something, I don't have it pulled up right in front of me, but one point something levels in improvement for the cancer patients, which we know patients with cancer don't typically get as great outcomes. Right. And there 
was a 47% reduction in number of patients with PEG tubes. So awesome. I guess I said there was going to be one research article. I lied. There was two. That's okay. So sorry. You're forgiven. I know you're forgiven. Uh, <laughs> but those two articles really, um, I think are my favorites because they're, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of sexy. When yeah. you think about like, here I am, I did this therapy for like two weeks, three weeks, and now I've got my patients eating again. I've got them able to tolerate more food. I have improved the quality of their swallow and I've gotten rid of those dreaded peg tubes. And that's all I think any of us want to do. Yeah. I think that's yeah, that's I don't shut for up all of us. Those. Awesome. The thing that was really the game changer for me in terms of what I do on a daily basis now, because like I said, I, I work for a company where my job is education and training SLPs how to use SEMG and how to apply SEMG. And I think when I very first started out, it was, okay, I have to train you. I have to teach yes. you how to use SEMG. And yes, if you have a tool, you need to learn how to use it. But once I read the survey that Giselle Carnaby had sent out in 2013, and I read the results of that, I changed my thinking because here's what happened. She sent the study to, um, out to members of SIG13, of mm -hmm. ASHA, and for those of you across the pond, that is the Special <laughs> Interest Group for Dysphagia. And um, it was a web-based survey, and she asked a couple of different questions, and one of them was, the, the first uh, part of that survey was a case study. And here's the patient, here's all their background history, here are the results of their fluoro. What would you do for this patient? And the responses she got, okay, you ready? I know you have like a face, like you're kind of cringing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there were 254 responses. Awesome. Okay. okay. She got 254 responses back and there were 47 different treatment techniques that were recommended for this single patient. Oh my God. Yeah. So this one patient, and we've talked about, you know, evidence-based interventions and yes, there are a few, but kind of just a handful yeah. and she got 47 different treatment techniques. Wow. Okay. So yikes, that's, that's not a lot of, um, agreeability right. for from person to person, right? So I would have recommended something and you would have recommended something totally different for the same person. Now here's where it gets really scary. <laughs> okay. Okay. 3.9% <laughs> of the SLPs indicated they picked this treatment from a specific physiological abnormality identified. So we've talked about the importance of treating based on physiologic impairment and 96% of the responses didn't do that. Okay. Well, it's a, it's a, we wonder why no one's recommending instrumental assessments. Right. And why we're the time. getting liquids and saying that none of our patients are getting better. Right. Well, this might be that. <laughs> this might be onto something. And it, and it gets even better. I, I, I had this, I was so lucky. I got to have, I got to go to dinner with her and we, and yeah. I, I was talking to her about it. It's funny because it's like you meet Dr. Curry and you meet Dr. Carnaby and they're so well known in our field. I was, I felt like I was meeting rock stars in our totally. field. And I was like, oh. so then I'm like talking to Dr. Carnaby at dinner about her survey and I'm like quoting her stuff to her. And I was like, oh my God, like I had an out of body experience. Yeah. But, you know, when we really talked about it, it was, it was very, it's eye opening for her. It was very eye opening yeah. for me. But yeah, it gets better because 58% of the recommended treatments didn't even match the symptoms presented. So, you know, I like to make it really easy for a layperson to understand. 
imagine someone came into physical therapy saying, hey, my hip hurts today, and I go ahead and treat your elbow. Yeah. Okay. Yikes. <laughs> so more than half of the responses, forget physiologic processes, forget instrumentals. Okay, I'm having a hard time swallowing, and here are the symptoms that I'm seeing, however accurate that may or may not be. And 58% of your treatments still aren't even matching that. Right. Wow. Right, that's a little bit scary. And only 13% of the techniques proposed were exercise-based interventions. So Crazy. now we think about why is it that, okay, so none of us have any idea what to do, except not anymore because you've listened to the <laughs> podcast. Right. But you try to do all these things, and we wonder why we spend all these months trying to fix our patients, and no one's getting better, and we just leave them on the diet that they're on because they're tolerating it, right? Right. The second part of her survey was of what kind of, and this is, this speaks on that, what kind of outcomes are you getting in your own clinic or in your own therapy? And only 19% were reporting a return to full oral diet without restrictions. So when we talk about how the quality of life of not being able to eat and drink whatever you want, we were only getting, we are only getting one out of five of our patients back to that level. One out of five, that is a 20% success rate. That's terrible. Okay, <laughs> so here I go to a speech pathologist because I'm having trouble swallowing and I can't eat all the food that I want to and I'm choking or whatever is happening. Um, and I say to the therapist, what, what kind of success do you get? Oh, I fixed 20% of my people. So 80, so you don't fix 80% of them? Oh yeah. And we find this as a profession to be acceptable. Right. Well, if you think about the fact that, um, you know, 3.9% of the SLPs were using the physiologic abnormality identified, and then you look at what is happening in the United States in terms of the future of healthcare and in terms of the future of insurance and reimbursement, and we're getting away from this rug system where we're just getting paid depending on like total number of minutes that we're treating for PT, OT, SLP. And they're starting to move more towards outcome-based reimbursement, right? And Good. even even with this RCS, though it doesn't look at the specific outcome, you know, how long you are in this acute stay changes what your reimbursement rate is. So if you want to get this patient out of the nursing home in a certain amount of time, you better be able to get faster outcomes. So if this is the way that we're going and we're only returning one out of five of our patients to this full oral diet, someone's going to notice this eventually. Someone who like actually can make decisions and make policies and we're going to be screwed. I mean, we're, we're going to be SOL because if we're not fixing more of our patients, right. Insurance is not going to want to keep paying us to do these ineffective treatments and spend time, you know, we talk about meal monitoring, how that's not skilled. And, and, you know, some of you are out there and I, I don't want to judge you, but, you know, we say, well, we're, we're watching them to make sure that they're compliant with the recommendations and that they're following the protocols of alternate bite and alternate sip. And really when you think about it and, you know, how is that skilled? How is it doing anything to improve the patient's ability to swallow? Right. And those things aren't. And sh sure, you know, when I'm, when I'm about to discharge a person, I'm going to go upstairs and make sure that the things that we've been doing did have carryover and that they're enjoying their meal and talk to the staff and make sure they understand, hey, here's where the patient is. But I'm not spending three weeks doing that. I'm spending 
10 minutes doing that. That's, that's different. Right, yeah, and I'm glad you said that. One of the earlier episodes, I think it might've even been Ed's episode. He, he was like, get out of the kitchen and get into right. the therapy gym. And I've gotten so many emails about it. Like I need to, you know, make sure my patient's doing compensatory strategies. Right? Why do we have to do that? Like, first of all, <laughs> I'm not into compensatory strategies unless you've tried rehab and it doesn't work. If you've done that, if you've done all the right things and it still doesn't work, then yes, we may need to do compensatory strategies, but why do you have to watch them? Can't we have the CNAs and nurses and whoever is up in the dining room spend a half a session, one single session and teach them this is what the patient should be doing. So keep an eye on them. And if they need another cue, give them another cue. Here are some effective cues that work. You don't need us to do that, especially not over more than one session. If it's taking you more than one session to teach these compensatory techniques, then really what are the chances that they're going to understand it and you're going to get that carryover anyway? Right, right. I know there was a big debate on Facebook the other day with a girl about, like, I mean, she literally was having the patient, like, stand on his head and twirl around five times for each bite. <laughs> and, you know, and she was right. like, he he was an end-stage dementia and I was working on it yeah. and everyone was just like, if you need all of those strategies, is, is he going to do any of them when you're not there? And that's not your job to do. Right. You know, so just like you said, I mean, we rehab the swallow and then take one. I'll even give you two sessions sitting in the dining room, but that's it. But right. <laughs> And I think it's yeah. really funny how we find it so important for us to be in the dining room, making sure the patient's doing that, because what happens the other two meals of the day and what happens... <laughs> we are we are like on lockdown at lunch like you you can only eat the meal that I'm there for the rest of the time you have to right I mean like no speech pathologist has ever taken a lunch break because they have to sit (laughs) through the entire lunch and be the police and then yeah and then it's like everything goes to probably breakfast and and dinner and and what happens on Saturday and Sunday when you're not there like you know it's like that one time we're there is like that magic session so we can make sure the next two times they're going to be perfect but oh that third time we better come back because they've probably forgotten it for the third time I'm you know and again there was a time that I was guilty of that I will fully come to that I'm not judging people because I was there too right I didn't know what else to do and I and you, you know some of that is because we have very limited education when we finish grad school most of us have one semester of dysphagia coursework right. there's no way you can learn everything you need to know right. that and that doesn't make us a bad person or a bad clinician and you get into the field and you have your supervisor I just think you're a bad person when you hear all this and you ignore and you it ignore it <laughs> Yeah. If you can but, say, oh crap, maybe I know better. That makes you a good person. <laughs> yeah. that This is a great opportunity. If you are doing these things and you didn't know what to do, that's okay. No one is blaming you. Right. As long as you take the information that you've gotten and now apply that, that makes you the best person right. possible. <laughs> right. Then I love you and I adore you because right. there's nothing better than seeing someone, seeing someone change and being willing to do that and being open-minded about that, right? you know? Yeah. That's, that's the name of this podcast. So that's yep. right. Swallow your pride. <laughs> I do it. it. <laughs> I, I, maybe it doesn't sound like it because I'm speaking so matter of factly today, but you know what? I do it every day when yeah. I go in and I meet with other SLPs and I see their patients. Yeah. There is so much that I still don't know. And I learn something new almost every day. So, yep. you know, I am not an expert 
you know, in the sense that I would like to be. I don't know everything I need to know. I know some very important things, I think. Yep. But there are so many things that I still don't know, and I try to learn about them. And that's why I know the research I do, because I'm reading more research. Every time I read a new article, I find something new I didn't know before. Right. And so every day we should be trying to get better. I know I was talking to one of my friends who is a, she teaches grad level dysphagia yesterday. And, you know, I mean, she, I would love to take her course. I mean, I would love to take that course again. She, she's incredible. And so I just think of how well prepared all these clinicians are going out into the field. And then she just has these horror stories of them going out and having these supervisors that are never even on site, but then they don't believe in instrumentation and yep. they're teaching them tongue wagging for, you know, 15 minutes and calling it a session, you know, just everything we've been talking about. And, you know, so sure. she feels like she's doing her part in, in trying as hard as she possibly can to get these you know these students up to par with dysphagia and then they're going out into the field and it's like she's like I just feel like they came back and forgot every single thing we talked about you know right and and for the students and the CFs that that even have learned the right thing to do when you wind up with your supervisor who is now teaching the wrong thing you wind up in a pretty uncomfortable it position is. because you know who the heck am I to question my supervisor right like you can, you know, depending on if you're a student, like you may get in trouble, they may not want to approve your hours of supervision. I mean, it, it's definitely um, kind of a Serious. scary place yeah. to be. And sometimes you just have to say, depending on like where you are, if you're a CF and that person is not on site with you every day and you know they're teaching you the wrong thing, you can, I always recommend just trying it very gently. So not as exuberant maybe as I have been all day today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But in a very gentle fashion, hey, you know, I heard about this article that says this. And just try to provide information. I think that's the same way we should approach with doctors who say, oh, I don't want to open up this can of worms. Right. You know, oh, well, hey, did, you know, there's the study. Can I share it with you about like what we can do and what the risks are? And I think that's the best way to try to get people in positions of maybe greater authority than we are to, to start doing the right thing. And if they still continue not to, then we just have to say, okay, and you go back, you know, and you go about your day and you still do you, you still do the right thing. So I think that's a great point to end on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. This was such a great Oh my God, this was great. I'm so excited for everyone to hear this one. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.